0: First Thessalonians 523 says, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs verse 20, chapter 20 verse 27 says, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. We've uh, been teaching um, about the spirit of man for a number of weeks. I don't know exactly how long, but during that time we've uh, spent some time locating the spirit. We know that man is a spirit. He's created in the image of God. He has a soul, which is made up of the mind, the will and the emotions, and he lives in a body. Uh, The spirit, the Bible tells us, is the part of man that is made new or recreated at the new birth. Second Corinthians 517 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And it's the spirit of man that God uses to contact or to lead him or to guide him in the affairs of life. Now, um Medical science has identified that man has a spirit. There have been a number of different ways that we could identify this, but one of the the most um, interesting to me took place, uh, well, it's been uh, 30 years ago now, I guess. Back in the, you may not be aware of it, uh, or generally maybe so, but in the, uh, in the 1970s and the late 70s, particularly, there were some uh, some great strides made in uh, in medical science in the area of uh, open heart surgery and things like that. They began to develop the artificial heart and uh, heart valves and replacement parts, so to speak, and and even some heart transplants and things like that. And uh, in the early days of uh, of heart surgery there were um uh it was it was really a gamble i mean the the doctors wouldn't give a person very much um, chance of survival because there were so many people that died on the operating table because they uh the, the the um the procedures and the tools that they used and and uh the the things that they used to um repair parts of the heart were were rudimentary compared to what they use today it may be more routine nowadays but in the early days it was not so and and there was a um uh Cardiac surgeon that um, uh, was involved in some of the early pioneering efforts. He was one of the ones, I think it was him that developed the, uh, uh, one of the valves. That they used for artificial replacement and so forth, but um, but he said his testimony was in the early days. It, you know, it was if you got a 50/50 chance or a 50/50 result out of uh, out of somebody coming through open heart surgery in the in the pioneering days, that was great. He said people were dying on the operating tables right and left, and uh, and he wasn't a Christian at the time. He had grown up in a in a Christian family, Christian home, but uh, but he was not a Christian and he said that uh, that there was a very startling thing that took place began to take place in his um cardiac um well he was a cardiac surgeon i don't know what the name for all this stuff is but cardiology or whatever as uh, as these things began to develop and and more and more uh, people were willing to, to take the gamble and take the risk for open heart surgery and valve and, uh, replacement and things like that. He said we'd have a lot of people that died on the table. And he said it would be interesting because people would tell me after the fact in, in the recovery room, they'd say things like, I saw you operating on me. And they would describe things that took place while they were under anesthesia. There would be no way for them to know, but they would identify that they were looking, they were kind of floating in the top of the room where the ceiling would be, watching the things that were were taking place. And they related many of them related things that were said between the doctors and the nurses about the uh, uh, about the operation and about the progress and and even some of the critical things that were taking place. Many of them saw uh, that that they were scrambling because they were losing someone and, and things like that. And he said it caused him some some great concern. Because he couldn't explain that. The first time that it happened, he just said, well, you're just imagining things. But then as it began to happen more and more, then he he realized there's got to be something to this. There's no way people could know this. They began to check the anesthesia and and wondered, are we putting them under uh, enough? Do we need to increase the anesthesia because people seem to be knowing what's going on? They identified, no, that's not the case. It's something that they couldn't explain. And then on occasion when somebody would die on the table, they'd come back screaming. There would be times where people would die on the table and then they would revive them through massaging the heart or whatever it was and they would come out of the anesthesia screaming, don't let me go, don't let me go, don't let me go. Well, that might unnerve a a hospital room, if you know what I mean. I mean, that could mess up the operation for people not knowing what was going on. He said this happened with such frequency. Now, I don't know how many of the times he's talking about, but he said it happened enough times to where it caused him to start doing some research. And, And so he talked to some of the people that had come back, particularly the ones that came back screaming. They would talk about uh, the flames that they were experiencing, and and they were describing something like hell. Well, he grew up in a Christian home, grew up in Sunday school, and so he remembered some of these stories and, and, and never had become a Christian himself. And so he dug out his Bible. He started doing some reading. And he found in doing some research, it was something that he started doing on the side with everybody that he lost on the table. He contacted them later and many times, in some cases, it was several years after the fact. And he would ask them. And he found that in every case, without exception, he found that he wrote a book about this. You can still get the book. I think it's still in print. But he said he found that in every case, a Christian that would go would sometimes experience watching the the operation but not having a sense of dread about it. Sometimes they would uh, experience uh, a light. Sometimes they would experience some other, other uh, thing that they described or something, you know, whether it be a garden or flowers or something like that. But it was always a peaceful event. But the people that he checked with that came back screaming, he found that they did not know the Lord. Well, he got saved. He got saved as a result of this, and and really, uh, if I remember the story correctly, he got saved because somebody came back screaming, grabbed him, put a death grip on his hand. He's got a scalpel in his hand, you know, and they've got a death grip on his wrist saying, don't let me go, don't let me go. I I can't go back to the the fire. Don't let me go. Well, he didn't know how to get them saved, didn't know know what was going on. He didn't know how to pray. He wasn't saved himself at the time. So he stumbled through something he remembered as as a kid in in Sunday school and realized that's totally inadequate. I've got to do something. I've I've got to search this thing out. So he wound up getting saved and wound up getting some of his people saved. And, And from that point on, he'd always give them the opportunity to get saved before he'd go into the operating room. Well, how does medical science explain that? There is something that happens after the body expires. He said, and I don't know how many cases he documented, it was something in the neighborhood of 30 or 35 cases, just in his own personal experience, and he didn't even include others. He said he did talk to other cardiologists, and many of them wouldn't discuss the subject with him. He said, I know that they were having some of the same experiences, and they just didn't want to deal with it. Well, medical science found out that man is a spirit being. That he continues to live after the body expires. And in many cases, as in this doctor's case, he saw people expire right in front of him. And yet their spirits continued to have their spirits continued to have experiences, either peaceful or hellish. Well, psychologists have found that man has a spirit as well. They've identified the conscious mind, what we know of as the soul. But they found that there's something that goes deeper than that. They call it the subconscious. Now, man doesn't have a subconscious mind. If he did, the Bible would tell us about it. But what they've done is they've identified the spirit. And psychologists have identified through experimentation they 've identified and it 's widely known in in circles that that uh, that you know psychiatric and psychological circles among doctors and so forth it 's widely understood that the subconscious mind has unlimited potential much greater abilities than the conscious mind now they can 't explain why they can 't explain how to tap into it. But they've identified that the subconscious mind, what they call the subconscious mind, which we know of as the spirit of man, is limited by the conscious mind or what we know of as the soul. Well, isn't it interesting that God made man in his own in his image and it wasn't the body that made him to be like God? See, animals have bodies. It wasn't the uh, an, a physical body that made man in God's image. It was only after man breathed into him the breath of life, imparted, or took something of himself, his, which Jesus said in John 4, 24, that God is a spirit. So if God took something of himself and he is a spirit, that has to mean he put a spirit in man. By definition, man has to be a spirit being if he's in the image of God because God is a spirit. And that's what caused man to be unique ...and distinguish from every other part of creation. In other words, what makes man man is the spirit. Yet even we as Christians spend most of our time... ...on either intellectual pursuits... ...career pursuits or physical pursuits. Yet those are not the things that distinguish us. We know that God placed within man a heart or a spirit hunger... ...from the beginning because he took part of himself... Your spirit is part of God. Whether you know it or not, your spirit is part of God. Even the unregenerated, the unsaved spirit is part of God in the sense that it's from him. And in that unrenewed spirit, that unregenerated spirit, as well as in those who are recreated by the birth of, by the blood of Jesus, there is a heart or a spirit hunger that drives man. Now, many times what happens is people will will follow that uh, that drive, not know what it is, and so they'll follow physical pursuits whether it be money or fame or fortune or or sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, you know, pleasures of the life, of this physical life, natural life, they'll follow those things, but it never satisfies them. See, if if man could be satisfied with anything and everything of the physical, then there would never be a case where a rich person or a successful person or a famous person would ever commit suicide. It'd be impossible if the physical realm is, is sufficient to satisfy man's spirit. But it's not. So as a result, man, not knowing in many cases, not knowing what that drive is on the inside of him, seeks after physical pursuits or physical pleasures and winds up empty. Because the only thing that can satisfy that spirit hunger, that heart hunger that God has placed in man is number one, the new birth, which brings him into union with God through Jesus. And then number two, fellowship with God. And that can only come through the word. So as a result, you've got many Christians who are born again. You can't be a Christian unless you're born again. I know not everybody has that definition, but that's the definition Jesus said. You must be born again. I'm, I, I'm always amused by the, by the terminology that people use in, in surveys and stuff like that about somebody being a born-again Christian. Folks, there ain't no other kind. If you're a Christian, it's because you've been born again. If you haven't been born again, I don't care how you grew up or what you think or, or what church you go to or anything else, you're not a Christian. But there are many Christians, people that have been bought by the blood of Jesus, accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but because they don't fellowship with God, they walk around with that same heart hunger, that same unsatisfied, unfulfilled heart-spirit hunger because it can only come through the Word. As a result, God made a way for us to be satisfied and to be fulfilled from our hearts, from our spirits, but it has to come through the Word. It's the only way that there is. Jesus said in Matthew 4, four, talking when he was tempted of the devil, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, the life that he's talking about is the life here on the earth. But he's talking about the spirit of man being satisfied and the source of that life here on the earth from his spirit working its way out. And he said that only comes by the word. Jesus said in John chapter six and verse 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Folks, there's nothing else that is spirit in life. Now, let's say I was a young man and I wanted to uh, uh, pursue some kind of physical fitness or something like that. Maybe I wanted to go into bodybuilding or, or something to that effect. And so I went to a health and fitness expert and I told him, here's my goal. I want girls to look at me on the beach and be able to count the ripples in my stomach and whatever. It's a nice fantasy, isn't it? Anyway. It would be a very simple thing for him to tell me how to do it. It's going to come down to three main things. He's going, to, he's going to tell me, if he's any good at his job, he's going to say, number one, you're going to have to eat right. Right, proper nutrition is necessary to feed your body and, and give it the, the nutrients and the essential things that it needs to, to build muscle and, and to look the way you want to look. Second thing is, you're going to have to exercise. You're going to have to push your body further than it's gone before so that it put, that uses the nutrients and the proteins and all that kind of stuff to make your muscles get bigger and to shape them and to form them and transform your body the way that it wants to be. You want it to be. Third thing is you're going to have to get enough rest. Muscles grow when you sleep, not when you're walking around or doing anything else. It's essential that you get the proper uh, sleep along with the other things that you need to do. Now, he can outline a big plan for me and show me exactly how to do it, tell me how much it's going to cost for him to work me out and to provide my meal plans and all this other kind of stuff. And at that point, I could say, wait a minute, I don't want anything to do with that. You don't understand. That's not the way I want this to happen. And he would probably be astonished and say, well, what do you mean? What do you want? What are you looking for? And if I told him, I want to do it with donuts," (laughs) Well, he'd probably close his book, his binder, and say, you know, you're just wasting my time. You can't get to where you want to get to with donuts." Yet that's exactly what most Christians try to do. They try to pursue some relationship with God, some ascendancy into church Doctrine or church theology or denominational hierarchy or whatever else it might be. Or hold some position that other Christians will think that they're somebody with God. But if they don't do it through the word, it can't be done. It's like them trying to become a health, uh, expert or health nut with donuts. Because the word's the only thing that feeds and develops your spirit. Now the word outlines a way for you to get it done, just like the health and fitness expert can do it physically. The word outlines and shows you the plan. But there is no health or fitness expert, no matter how good they are, how famous they are, how many other people they've trained or anything else that can make you do, follow the plan. That's the choice of the individual. It's the same way spiritually. You can develop your spirit. You can feed and develop your spirit just like you can feed and develop your body. But you first have to know the plan. You have to know the way that, that makes that happen. And secondly, you have to follow the plan. For that reason, when we talk about spiritual development, there are really four main points. We sometimes call them steps, but I think it's probably better to call them points because there are four main points to developing spiritually. Now, turn with me to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Are you sick of Joshua 1-8 yet? I hope you're not. I know that I keep going back to it over and over again. And folks, I'm kind of at a different place with uh, with the church and teaching in the church than I've ever been. I've never had overlapping series going at the same time on purpose. And it's almost like my Sunday mornings and my Wednesday nights are, are overlapping and they, they even bleed over into healing school a lot of times because... There's just something about this that the Holy Ghost won't let me get away from. And I don't care. It's kind of like having a, a different means or a different having a, a, a certain food type, whether it's potatoes or meat or whatever it is, fixed up a different way, but you want to have it every meal. So it's almost like that's what the Holy Ghost is doing. I, I cannot get away from these things. And I realize that the reason that I can't get away from these things is because the Holy Ghost is trying to show you something. Now, God told Joshua... Two of the steps. He said this book of the law, Joshua is about to take over the... Or, well, he is taking over the leadership, of the children of Israel. Moses has been the leader of the children of Israel for this uh, up to this point for 40 years. Moses was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's the one that talked face to face with God. You stood against Moses and the earth opened up and swallowed you up and then closed back up together. They saw the pillar of fire come down and talk with Moses... They saw the glory cloud that Moses walked into that nobody else could walk into. I mean, they saw some miraculous things. He's the one that divided the Red Sea uh, by holding out the staff and then uh, letting them come back together and, and destroy Pharaoh and his army. I mean, he's a tough act to follow. Can you imagine the people of Israel, the children of Israel out in the wilderness, that would not be willing to follow anybody else when they finally accepted that Moses was the guy that God used? Well, that's the situation that Joshua faces. And so God says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Well, that sounds pretty good. I mean, if I was Joshua, I'd be be saying, hey, all right. Can I pick when the ground opened up? I like that part. You know, swallowing your enemies, that's a good thing. There were times where the children of Israel murmured against Moses and a plague came through the camp, destroyed the ones that were murmuring. I mean, God did some stuff to show Moses is my guy. And God says to Joshua, I'll be with you just like I was with, with Moses. I'd be excited about that. I'd be glad to hear that. I'd be thinking, well, I don't want to lead these people any other way. But then what does God say to Joshua about how to be successful? It would seem to me, and in most people's thinking, I, I, well, you judge it for yourself. It seems to me that most people would think this way. That if God says, I'll be with you as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Well, that's the end of the subject then. If God's going to be with me like he was with Moses, that means I can just breeze through life. All I've got to do is wait for whatever God says and then do what he says and take the children of Israel wherever he says to go, because God's going to be with me like he is with Moses. But notice what the conditions for God being with him like he was with Moses are. Joshua one eight. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, why is his prosperity and why is his success conditional on the word? Because, folks, there's only one way that God will prosper you, and that is by you putting the word to work in your life. Do you realize how many thousands, millions of wasted prayers there are for people praying, God, prosper us? When God's method is to prosper you one and only one way, and that is through the word, and that's through your efforts regarding the word, not through God's. Now, let me back up a few verses and show you what I was talking about Here's God talking to Joshua in verse 5. He said, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. The word fail means I won't lose power or strength. The word forsake means to abandon or disown. He says, I will not lose power or strength with you. I'll be as strong with you as I was with Moses. I will never walk away from you. Verse 6, Be strong and of good courage. Why? If God's going to be with me like he is with Moses, what do I need to be strong and of good courage for? Man, I'm going to go looking for a fight. What is this strong and good courage stuff about? Only be thou strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Verse 7, only be thou strong and very courageous. Now, the second time God tells you something, you better listen. He's making a point. So he says, Joshua, I'm going to be with you like I was with Moses. Don't worry about my power. Don't worry about me walking away from you. I'll always be there. I'll always be on hand. I am ever ready to help you. But you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to be courageous. No, you don't understand, Joshua. You're going to have to be very strong and very courageous. Why? Because his answer, his means, his method for being strong and powerful and always with you is the word because God always works from the inside out and man is a spirit being the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord whenever our text scripture says Proverbs twenty verse 27 the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly everything you want God to do for you everything you might pray everything you have prayed everything your Christian friends pray for God to do for them is going to come one and only one way and that's through the spirit So many times people are praying that God changes circumstances from the outside. That's not the way it works. God changes circumstances, external circumstances, with inward or from inward or spiritual forces. And those spiritual forces can only be fed one and only one way through the word. So he says this book of the law. Now, the book of the law was the book of Moses. That's all they had. That's representative for us because we've got more of the whole, the entirety of the word of God. So we could read it that way. This word of God, if you want to be successful and prosperous like God told Joshua, you can get there the same way because God does not play favorites. He didn't play favorites between Moses and Joshua. He doesn't play favorites between you and Joshua or you and Moses or you and Jesus or anybody else. It's the same means of success, the same means of prosperity that's available for everybody, and that's through the word. And it's God's only means of success. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth but thou shalt meditate. Notice the connection between the mouth and meditation. Now, folks, let me stop right here and make a comment. I want you to see how the devil works. What is the one thing in, in so-called faith circles or word of faith circles or whatever that is the most criticized about our doctrine? Confession. Confession. Critics of what they call the word of faith or the faith movement or or word faith movement or whatever. By the way, there is no such thing as the faith movement. There is no such thing as the word of faith movement. Jesus said or Paul said by the Holy Ghost, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Wherever the word is preached, faith is the result, period. If there is any emphasis on faith, it's because and can only be because of the word of God. You can't have faith without the word of God, at least not Bible faith. You can have natural human faith. You believe in the chair you're sitting. That's why you didn't check it out before you sat down. So you have natural experience, and so you believe in physical things, but that's not really faith of the heart. Faith of the heart is expressed by what you say. And the one major thing that is criticized in what other people call the faith movement, I won't call us that because it's not, but the one major thing that people criticize in what they call the faith movement or the word of faith movement, churches like us, is the confession Emphasis. And they say the very idea, the arrogance of those faith people, so called faith people, to think that by saying something, they can get God to move. If God and Jesus and others had not told us that it works, I would agree with them. But here's God telling Joshua, one of the earliest pioneers. Here's how it works. If you want to be successful, if you want to make your way prosperous, this book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. I've said this before, but it bears repetition. So many Christians freak out over the word meditate because they get a picture of somebody sitting in the lotus position and humming. Their idea of meditation is Eastern meditation practices and stuff like that. Well, all Eastern meditation practices are about one and only one thing, and that is to empty your mind. That's a short step for many Christians, I agree. Nevertheless, Bible meditation is not about emptying your mind, it's about speaking the Word. Speaking the Word engages your mind, not empties it. I'll agree that Eastern meditation practices open people's minds to the enemy. They open their minds to the spirit realm, and there's a lot of evil spirits out in the spirit realm. I would not suggest that or encourage that practice. But that's not what the Bible means when it says meditate. One definition of the word meditate is the word mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R. To meditate is to mutter or to speak or to say something to yourself again again and again and again and again and again. It engages your mind. Not empties it. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Notice he's talking about meditation being the equivalent of speaking the word, saying it to yourself again and again. This book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Notice he says the word should hold such a place of prominence in your life that you're always aware of it. Now, he does not mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God knows Joshua has a lot of responsibilities as leader of the children of Israel taking Moses' place. He's not saying your job is to spend every minute of every day meditating the word. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you should put, give the word of God the place of priority in your life so that you're never without it. Now, folks, I don't care what anybody does. I don't care how busy anybody is. I don't care what somebody's schedule might be. It doesn't matter. The, most, the, the busiest person in the world can always take one scripture with them in whatever they're doing to meditate on. It's not a constant thing, but it's always there on the ready when you have opportunity. But that's not what most of the church world does. Most of the church world starts off with a Bible reading, and they think that a Bible reading, a daily Bible reading is sufficient. Well, back to my example about the fitness expert, eating the right foods is not the only thing that's important. Because let me tell you an experience that I had. I went to a doctor and he did a blood test on me one time and he said, your body is not assimilating proteins. He said, we need to make some adjustments so that your body utilizes the proteins you're getting. Now, at the time, I was taking protein supplements. I was working out real hard. And so I was taking protein supplements and trying to build muscle and things like that. He said, you're wasting your time taking this protein, these protein supplements and spending all this money on these, these uh, powders and, and nutritional supplements and, and, and so forth. He said, you're wasting your money because your body's not using them. They're passing through your body, but your body is not using them and getting the benefit of them. So he said, here's what we need to do. We need to add some enzymes and some uh, amino acids to your nutritional plan so that your body breaks down these proteins and can use them more readily and more effectively. So really, if you think about it, it's not even the food that you eat that matters. It's the food that you digest. Meditating in the Word is digesting the Scripture. It's not Bible reading. People go through this, well, I'm going to read so many chapters of the Bible a day, you'd be better off meditating on one scripture a day. Because your spirit will digest or soak in or absorb that one scripture where reading many, many chapters won't even work. Now, you know as well as I do, you can sit down and read through something really quick, but that doesn't mean you retain it all. Meditation is a means whereby you retain, and I'm not just talking about memorization. I'm not just talking about a mental retention. It's a means whereby your spirit retains the reality of the word that you're reading. Or the, literally the word that you're meditating on. It's the way for the word to soak into your spirit. Because the word that you read is not what does you any good. It's the word that you absorb. It's the word that goes from your mind down into your spirit, becomes a part of you, the real you. Because God contacts you, remember, through your spirit. The Holy Ghost, Jesus said one of the works of the Holy Ghost is he'll bring all things to your remembrance. Well, from where? God contacts you by the Spirit of God in your spirit where he lives. So it's not just stuff in your mind you can have stuff in your mind and not even realize it's there and miss the leading of the Holy Ghost. It's when you meditate on the word, digest it, if you will, into your spirit, make it a part of you. And that's where the Holy Ghost can bring it to your remembrance and show you how to use it. So notice what he says. Really, there are three principles in this verse of Scripture that are, that are three of the four points to develop in spirit. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt, number one, meditate in the word. Day and night. In other words, give the word first place. Make the word of such priority to you that no matter where you go, the word is with you. Now, folks, if you're meditating on something that's new, get a little three by five note card or a post-it note or something like that and write the scripture on it so that you can refer back to it until it becomes something that you can start absorbing on your own. Once you start meditating on it and saying it to yourself four or five times, maybe ten times, whatever it is, you won't need the little three by five card or you won't need the remembrance the, the little reminder, post-it note or whatever it is. You won't need the reminder because you'll have it enough to where your spirit will start turning it over. One, uh, one translation, it's a, it's a paraphrase. It's not a, really a translation. It's a paraphrase. One paraphrase of this verse of scripture says, instead of meditate, it says chew the cud. Now it's, it's the farmer's translation. Because farmers know how cows operate. Cows will eat grass. And what they'll do is they've got a, uh, they've got two or three stomachs. I'm not what it is. They've got more than one stomach anyway. And what they do is... And I'm sorry if this is gross, but it's just the way it works. Before it is digested and broken down to where their bodies can use it, this grass will go into a stomach, come back up into the mouth re-chew it, go back into the other stomach, come back up. This thing, this process goes through several times. This what's called chewing the cud. In other words, they chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it before it ever can digest so that it can affect their bodies. And that's what the Bible is supposed to be for you. It doesn't digest in a means that can that, that can help you make your way prosperous or bring you good success until after it's digested and absorbed into your spirit. Now, it's interesting to me that God seemed to know enough about this stuff to make at least one animal, and I don't think he's the only one, but at least one animal on the earth to show us that it's the operation of of putting the right food in his mouth over and over and over again that provides him the nutrition that he needs to be a healthy animal. The same thing's true for us. So this book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt, number one, meditate in the word of God. Here's the first point, meditate in the word of God. Say the word of God to yourself, day and night. That's the the third principle, the third point, is to give the word first place. Never let it get away from you. Now, what's the purpose for that? That thou mayest observe to do. Here's the second point. Here's the second of the three points in there. That thou mayest observe to do all that's written therein. You can't be a doer of the word if you don't know what it is. And to be perfectly honest with you, you're not really a doer of the word unless you're doing it from your spirit. There's a lot of things that we do as a ritual. There's a lot of things that we do as a a means of, well, I know the Bible says that I'm supposed to do this, but when it becomes real to you on the inside, then you do it from your heart, and then it has a lot more impact. I know that forgiveness is this way. A lot of times people forgive because they know they're supposed to. But you start meditating on the love of God and meditating on forgiveness, then you'll start meditating because you want to. And that has nothing to do with feelings. But because you want to operate according to the way the love of God works. And meditation in forgiveness, meditating in the love of God, will enable you to forgive people that you might have thought that you would never be able to forgive. But you can't. This book of the law, this word of God, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. To what end? that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, for then, after doing those three things, meditating, giving the word first place, and doing the word. Notice each one of these steps have to do with one and only one thing, and that is the word of God. Because there is no other way to develop spiritually. There is no other way to make your way prosperous and and have good success. There is no other way to get God's help except through the word. Jesus said this. Jesus said in in, Matthew, John chapter 15, verse 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. He's guaranteeing an answer to your prayer. He said the way to ensure an answer to your prayer every time is to pray the word. Why? Because the word is the means where you have success, even in your prayer life. How many Christians' prayers do you think are based on the word? Instead of just based on what somebody wants. And even if what they want is in line with the word, if they don't know the words there, there's no power behind their prayer. Brother Hagin made a startling statement the first time I heard it. Startling to me anyway. It's true. It was true for a long time before I ever knew it. But he said this. He said, first time I heard him say this, just almost floored me. He said, your prayers getting answered has more to do with you than it has to do with God. Well, I came from a church. Taught God sometimes answers yes, sometimes answers no, and sometimes answers wait. So in my thinking, what I'd been taught all my life is that prayer answered prayer was totally based on God. You just never knew which of the three answers He's going to give: yes, no, or wait. But I heard Brother Hagen say, and he backed up with a scripture, scriptures like John fifteen verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. Folks, answered prayer is based on the word. And prayers that are not based on the word, God doesn't have any way to answer them. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, God has exalted his word above his name. Now the name represents power. All throughout scripture, the name of Jesus is the most powerful name in the universe. The name always represents power. Most of the church world focuses on the power of God. Well, God can do something if only he will. Yet God said, I have exalted or emphasized my word above my name. In other words, it's more important to know what God's word says than to know what God can do. God's power is unlimited. That's a given. All things are possible with God. The question is, what will God do? The answer is... He'll do whatever his word says. Nothing more, nothing less. Because he's exalted his word above his name. Well, then doesn't it make sense that if we're going to have success in life, it's going to be based on his word. This book of the law, this word of God, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written in. For then, notice then, then "then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. You're the one that makes your way prosperous through your attention to the word. Then you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall have good success. Then you shall have good success. The Amplified Translation says, then thou shalt deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, that makes sense. Couldn't be prosperous unless you deal wisely in the affairs of life. And notice how that comes. That comes through the word. It comes only through the word. Charismatics are the world's worst at this. Because charismatics have been taught that the Holy Ghost is so important that once you get filled with the Holy Ghost, once you speak with tongues, that is it. But have you ever noticed over in Acts chapter 6 where it talks about how that uh, um, there were seven deacons that uh, the Holy Ghost, uh, the the church was growing so rapidly that people were being um, neglected in the, the daily activities of the church and so forth. And so the people, were, the people that were not Jews that were part of the church of Jerusalem came and they said, we're not being treated as well as the Jewish members of the church. Our widows are being neglected in the daily operations of the church and so forth. So we need to fix this. So the apostles, Peter stood up and said, well, look, it's not right for us to take our time away from the word of God in prayer. They understood what the important things were. So it's not right for us to take our attention away from the word of God and prayer to attend to at tables or the business matters and so forth. So he said, so he, he gave them direction by the Holy Ghost. He said, here's what you need to do. Choose you out among you seven men. Now, there are three qualifications for those seven men. These are the first seven deacons of the church. Three qualifications. He said, of honest report. Well, you don't want somebody attending to business matters and financial matters unless they have an honest report. First care, First qualification. The second qualification, he said, and full of the Holy Ghost. Well, that's good. You want somebody full of the Holy Ghost so they can be led of God, right? But then the third thing he said, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, which indicates that not everybody that's full of the Holy Ghost has wisdom. Now, if you haven't figured that out, you haven't been very far yet. Some of the most unwise people you're going to find in the church world are filled with the Holy Ghost. Some of the most gullible people in the the church world are filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, wouldn't it be nice if just being filled with the Holy Ghost brought you an automatic dose of wisdom? Personally, I think as a pastor, that saved me a lot of trouble. Truly. But have you ever looked at what Proverbs says about wisdom? It talks about how important wisdom is, and it talks about the blessings for those that find it. Now, there's only one source of wisdom, and that's the word of God. So the implication, in it, well, it goes further than the implication. The instruction to us is the only way you're going to find wisdom, the only way you're going to deal wisely in the affairs of life, as God told Joshua, is through the word of God. The word of God is the only avenue there is. It's the only avenue there is. I get kind of amused by some people that want, to, want me to listen to stuff. And, and I won't. Don't. If you've got something you want me to listen to, you're wasting your time. Even if I'm nice enough to say, well, yeah, okay, I'll take the cassette or the t- CD or whatever. I will never listen to it. I, I promise you. Before heaven, I will never listen to it. Because I am listening to things that are important to me. If it blesses you, that's great. I, I'm, ter- uh, I'm, I'm thrilled with that. That's terrific. The same things don't bless everybody. But I've got what works for me. I'm not looking for more stuff. I want to get down what I know or what I'm learning. I want to get it down to where I really, really, really know it and where I've got it settled in my heart because I know what I've got is the key to success. I don't need somebody else's new teaching. It might be interesting. It might thrill you for the moment. But after a week goes by, are you really going to remember what thrilled you? I'm not after the thrill. I'm after the truth. And the Word of God is the truth of God. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, maybe somebody's got a new way of looking at it. That's great. If it blesses them, that's terrific. But, folks, I'm amazed how God can enlighten me on scriptures that I've known for 35 years. I'm amazed how God can give me confidence in a scripture that I've known forever. Well, how does he do that, Pastor Mike? He does it the same way for me as he does it for you, through meditating in the Word. I've made it a point this year, and I I believe I was led of the Holy Ghost to do it. I know the results are, are supernatural but I was led of the Holy Ghost toward the end of last year to quit looking for new scriptures to meditate on and go back and meditate on the ones that I thought that I had. And folks, it has it has supercharged my life. It's transformed me. Because scriptures that I thought that I had a handle on, now I'm seeing more that's there, and I'm thinking, dear Lord, how did I not see that before? Now, if you can do that after walking with the Lord for, for, for years why do you need something else? I don't. Now notice what it says. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. After meditating in the word, giving the word first place and being a doer of the word, then you make your way prosperous. Now folks, can I bring something to your attention? Under the old covenant, there were three people that could have the spirit of God and only three. The king, the priest and the prophet. Nobody else. Underline Nobody else had the Spirit of God. Nobody had the Spirit of God in them, not even the king, the priest, and the prophet. But there were those that God would specifically anoint for specific purposes. Now, the only exception to that was that there were times, uh, Solomon's temple being built was a good example. There were times where there were certain specific works that had to be done that God would temporarily place an anointing on those people to do the works and so that the temples could be built. Outside of that, nobody else was anointed. Nobody else had the Spirit of God in any way. It was impossible to have the Spirit of God within them. And they could supernaturally make their way prosperous through simply acting on the Word. Now, if we've got the comforter, remember what Jesus said, and I'll pray the Father and He'll give you another comforter. That word comforter is literally the word paraclete in the Greek. It means, I don't know, it it has seven different meanings. I'm not sure if I can remember them all right off the top of my head. But counselor, helper, intercessor, strengthener, standby, advocate, And something else. In other words, there's not one area of life that the Holy Ghost won't be a help or an aid to you. Not one. Now, when Jesus said, we take it for granted because we're used to being filled with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Ghost living on the inside of us. And we take it so for granted and have no clue the reality of the power that dwells in us. Even the greatest of us that, that go into the the supernatural things of God, we still haven't scratched the surface of what really abides on the inside of us. Jesus said, and I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. We to look at that and we think, oh, wasn't that nice? Jesus said that like, hey, the thing that God intended all along is finally here. But we look at it like, yeah, well, thank God for the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost? Seriously? The Spirit of God lives in you? So you don't get it. You can tell by the look on people's faces. They're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Folks, if we realize that the Spirit of God lived in us, I mean God, the God, the one that created the universe, we'd quit praying for power. We'd quit praying for help would quit praying that God would do something about our problems. Because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. He's already there. He's already there. If those people in the old covenant, Joshua included, if they, under a covenant that wasn't as good as ours, that didn't have a foundation of as good a promise as ours, Hebrews 8, 6 says, We have a better covenant established upon better promises if they could get supernatural and even miraculous prosperity what do you think you can have with the helper living in you we can have super prosperity we can have super success and we're supposed to okay well thanks for coming Meditate on that for a little while. The only means that they had under the old covenant to prosper, and they prospered in such a manner that it made other nations jealous. The only means of prosperity, the only means of success they had was one and only one thing, one and only one method, one and only one means, and that was acting on the Word of God. Meditating, giving the Word of God first place, and acting on it. That's all they had. You've got that with the helper on the inside, to enhance your meditating, giving the word first place, and acting on it. I've always been amazed by the scripture that says that God, once after we get to heaven, that God will wipe away every tear. It struck me one day, it just occurred to me, what are people crying about in heaven? You can't wipe away tears if nobody's crying. I can understand crying here. But what will we be crying about in heaven? And I thought about that and I thought about it. and I still think about it. What are people going to be crying about in heaven? Well, I can think of a couple of things. I can think about people that whose loved ones didn't make it there. That's certainly something to cry about. I believe when it says God wipes away every tear, he takes away that memory. Because it couldn't be heaven if you knew your loved one wasn't there. I can't find a scripture that pro that, that confirms that. But just knowing the character and the nature of God, how are you going to enjoy heaven if your loved one is, didn't make it? As a parent, you got a child that doesn't make heaven? You're going to enjoy eternity? I wouldn't. So that's one thing that I think it means when God wipes away every tear. But you know something else I think people are going to cry about? And this may be the greatest weeping and wailing that there is. I believe that when we get to heaven, we will realize the unreached potential that we had here on the earth. And that's going to make a lot of folks really, really sorrowful they're going to see all the prayers that they wasted, all the time that they wasted, all the effort and the energy they wasted worrying. When it comes to their understanding, when their eyes are finally fully opened, what we have by being joined to the Father through Jesus and being filled with the greater one. What we have, what we could have done, those that we could have reached, the blessings that we were trying to get God to bring us, when God wanted them all the time, we'll see that. There'll be a lot of things for most of us to cry about. There's only one way to avoid that. That's to meditate on the word here. To give the word first place in your life and to be a doer of the word here. That's the only option there is. To enter into the success and the prosperity that God has for you. And when I, Listen, when I use the word prosperity, the Bible doesn't just mean financial well-being. It means well-being in every area. It's not just talking about finances. I'm not just talking about rich. I'm not just talking about, hey, let's get as much money as we can and really show God how spiritual we are. That's not what I'm talking about at all. As far as I'm concerned, prosperity is just freedom. Prosperity is not a number. I'm not prosperous if I get a million dollars. I'm prosperous when my needs are met to a degree that I'm free to do whatever God wants me to do with the finances, and I don't have to say, well, God, I can't do that because of work. God, I can't do that because of my finances. God, I can't do that because of my schedule. Prosperity, as far as I'm concerned, prosperity is freedom. I know so many people that I know the hand of God is on their life, maybe to go to the mission field or something, but they can't afford to go. Where's the freedom there? They're not prospering. Prosperity for me, and I believe what prosperity means in the Bible, is free to do whatever God tells you whenever he tells you to go. Or act. So the Bible says God will wipe away every tear in heaven. I don't want to be one of those that are crying. I've made that an aim of mine. A goal. Lord, show me what I need to do here so that I won't be crying there. It's part of what the Holy Ghost will do. He'll guide you into all the truth. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy words. Uh, John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy word. When Jesus was praying for the church, he said, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. So if the Holy Ghost guides you into all the truth, it's got to be the same truth that Jesus said was the word of God. So look at what the helper will do. Look at what the strengthener and the standby will do. He'll help you in the word of God. He'll help you to prosper, to make your way prosperous. He'll help you to have good success or deal wisely in the affairs of life. He'll help you do it. If we put the word first place. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is the means whereby we walk in the fullness of what you've provided for us through Jesus. We thank you, Father, that as we meditate in the word, as we give it first place in our life, and as we are doers of the word, we thank you, Father, that we do make our way prosperous and we do have good success. Thank you that that's your plan, your purpose, and your will for every one of us as children of God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the greater one on the inside of us, for leading us into the truth of your word. Give each of us, Father, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our spiritual understanding, Lord, that we may know what is the hope of your calling and what the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints would be and what is the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. We ask that, Father, in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.